this is volume seven that I just got from the library, and the mm. art is like so different from volume really? one too. Yeah, like it's it's a lot more complicated. Like you can take a oh, look. interesting. Yeah, like I think the art is great in one and two, but it gets so much more like refined and and detailed huh. as she goes along. So it's it's really awesome. Interesting. I love seeing that. Like I love seeing the improvement. Mm-hmm. In manga artists, it's like anyway. Maybe I should save this. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think maybe photos. that's the start of our episode now. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to The Trade Waiters. We have a special guest today, Faith Erin Hicks, and she has picked a couple of books for us. We're going to do volumes one and two of Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Kui. So, Faith, uh, we usually start with a character-building question. Do you have a character-building question for us? I do. Um, so we're all creators here, we're all cartoonists, people who've worked in comics and, and written and drawn stories. Uh, so something that I'm always curious about is... As a cartoonist, usually there are certain genres that we tend to gravitate toward, t- towards, tend to work in. So what is a genre that you'd like to work in that you are not known for or have not worked in in the past? Uh, so I'm Jeff Ellis, and I guess mostly I'm doing really auto-bio-slice-of-life stuff in my work, and I think something I'm not known for is superheroes, and I actually feel like I'd like to do a superhero story. Would you like to create your own, or do you want to, like, do, like, Superman? I think, like, honestly, life goals, if I could do, like, a one-shot Spider-Man story, I would feel like that's, like, a life goal accomplished. Nice. Yeah. That that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Jam. I'm best known for my autobio and comedy work. I think I'm I'm best known as like a comedian and like that type of comedy and I also have dabbled in instructional comics so things that are more informational but what I would really like to break into is science fiction. So I have been practicing writing science fiction short stories and I've done a couple of shorts for Cloudscape Works but uh it's something that I would really like to delve into more deeply. Yes, I really like the the science fiction stuff you've done for Cloudscape. I think it's some of your best work. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> and it's definitely the genre that I read the most of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Faith gave us a heads up with this question, and I'm still trying to figure out my answer here. So normally I, I do, I've done some science fiction. Uh, I've done some sort of like historical fantasy type stuff uh, or historical fiction. One thing I've thought a lot about doing but haven't actually done yet is nonfiction like, I've had a lot of ideas for, like, this would be a great nonfiction project, whether it's a comic or, like, a, um illustrated book or something, I don't know. But so far I haven't delved into that just because I'm, I'm intimidated by the level of research that would be required. But, yeah, no, at some point I want to do something that's, like, nonfiction. That's really funny to me because you do an astonishing amount of research for your fiction. <laughs> so I have a high degree of confidence that you would crush nonfiction. Okay, <laughs> it would be thank you. Amazing. Uh, I feel part of it is I, I don't really know, like I don't have an intuitive sense of what the standard is for like nonfiction because I don't know anyone who does that as like their main thing. Like I don't have a, a good gauge in my own head of like how much do I need to do to, to make it work. But we'll see. There's only yeah. one way to find out. That's yeah. true. <laughs> okay. 
So I'm Faith, and I guess I'm I'm most known for doing works that uh, skews a little bit younger. I've done a lot of young adult graphic novels. I did a fantasy trilogy called The Nameless City, which was aimed at uh, middle grade, so you know kids in elementary school. I won two Eisner Awards, and they were both for kids comics, which was really exciting. But yeah, like that that's what I'm known for. I'm known for doing comics for for teens and for for younger readers. But I would love to do like space horror, you know, like very adult, like Alien or like John Carpenter's The Thing. And the, like I am actually very very scared of horror. Like I I get scared so easily. You know, I, I'm I'm not a brave person when it comes to watching horror movies or you know horror reading horror comics or books or that kind of thing. But I'm also very very attracted to it. You know, there's something about the medium that, that kind of calls to me. So I would love to do like a space horror movie, like especially one focusing on on women. And yeah, I don't think it's happening anytime soon. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. I just it's just like uh, right now, you know, like I have like a bunch of YA and, and younger skewing books lined up in my in my 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 work category but um, I don't know maybe someday maybe someday uh, can you remind me you did a comic after demonology 101 that was you right and oh yeah there was this like ice based comic yeah. Oh, yeah oh my gosh that was so long ago that, um, that's one of my favorites that I've ever you're kidding. read oh, yeah gosh. no and it's um, like I think it didn't end fully right no no it didn't um, yeah. so when I was in college I went to animation college and when I was in college I did this web comic called Demonology 101 which was very influenced by Buffy the Vampire Slayer you know like team girl supernatural powers but also like high school hijinks and then I graduated and was working in the animation industry and my life was miserable and I just I hated everything. So I did this comic called Ice that was, I mean, I don't know, it's it's a little embarrassing looking back on it because I feel like it was very much like 20s angst, you know, and putting this into a comic. So it was about like this future world where basically um, global warming had caused uh, a nonstop winter. So it was like people living in this sort of steampunk environment. And yeah, I never ended up finishing it. Like... I wrote and drew, like, 250 pages and, like, updating it on, on my website and then uh, got to the point where comics were becoming my job and just, you know, it's, like, it's hard to prioritize free work when you're being paid to draw yeah, comics. Course, yeah, of course. But, um, like, but it, yeah. it reminds me of, like, the horror genre oh, that you were talking about. So yeah, I thanks. would love to see horror. Mm-hmm. I actually, like, I actually took it off, like, it's not available online anymore. I took it off my website because I felt like as it's, you know, it's got swearing in it, it's got nudity, it's got violence and that kind of thing, and it's not representative of the work that I do now. So I was kind of nervous of, like, I don't know, 12-year-olds going online and being like, oh, you know, I I really enjoyed Superhero Girl or I enjoyed Friends with Boys. Let me check out this Ice comic. And I'm just like, no, it's not for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, now I feel, now I feel like deep. Yeah. Deep knowledge. Yeah. That's, right. that's, yeah, not very many people know about it or, yeah. or did read it. So uh, thank you so much. I, yeah, no I appreciate worries. that. <laughs> cool. All right. Okay. Should we talk about uh, Ryoko Kui? Jam, you just Googled our artist here. What can you tell us? There are no photos online. That is my... That is my takeaway from my quick Google image <laughs> search of Ryoko Kui. Okay. I always think Isn't that's it? actually really interesting that... Like, Japanese manga artists, they don't, they're not public-facing the way North American cartoonists tend to be. Like, one of my favorite Japanese cartoonists is Haruma Arakawa, who did Full Metal Alchemist and Silver Spoon. And there's, like, one photo of her online. Huh. Like, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's been publishing Delicious in Dungeon in Haruta, Haruta magazine, uh, since 2014. She has one 
an excellence award in the manga division for her 2013 comic Terrarium in Drawer. That's <laughs> <laughs> like a theme. Yeah. No, I mean her her first work. Her first work was a 2011 collection of one shot called The Dragon School is on Top of the Mountain. So there is definitely I think that was published in English. Like, I remember seeing, just when I was at Indigo the other day, um, there was a new collection of, like, her her older work that was Hmm. published, I think, by... Is it... Oh, Yen Press. Maybe Yen Press or Kadansha. I'm not sure. But yeah, I remember... So, like, Delicious in Dungeon, I remember seeing people talking about it online a couple years ago, I think when the first couple volumes were published... And I was initially, like, very, very skeptical. People were recommending it to me, and I was like, it seems too Dungeons & Dragons for me. Like, that's not something that I've ever played or ever been involved with. And sometimes, like, the the way that it kind of, the look of it, especially in the early volumes, it seems very, like, traditional fantasy, which, again, I'm not, not super interested in. But then I started reading it, and it was just like, this is amazing. This is nothing like I expected. Like, it's really funny. The characters are really engaging, very human, very, very sweet. And um, the art is just really fun to look at. Oh, yeah. I think that you're describing my response to reading this book. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> I think the first couple pages, I was like, oh, is this just yeah. a D&D fantasy comic? Yeah. And then the twist of, yeah. like, well... We we don't have money for provisions, so what are we going to do? Oh, we'll we'll cook and eat all the monsters we encounter, <laughs> and then suddenly that's the focus. The main thrust of this whole manga is just like cooking and eating monsters, and that's what hooked me. I was like, yeah. oh, okay, this is so weird. I'm on board. Um, just just <laughs> so people don't get confused, maybe we should do like a little introduction. Oh of yeah, the yeah, world. yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. Should I go for go for that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, so Delicious in Dungeon is about this group of four adventurers. Um, I'm going to read their names off. We have Marsili, who is a young woman, a magical elf girl. Um, she's self-doubting but very powerful. We have Laos, I think, and he's, you know, the, the knight character. He's got more depth to him, but he's he kind of comes off as a little bit dim in the beginning. Um, we have Chilchuk, who is a... I think it's a half foot or halfling. Half yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, he's. I think they call him a half foot so they don't get sued. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is halfling. <laughs> is that like. I, oh, God. I'm just, okay. But like halfling would be Lord of the Rings mythos. Oh, okay. So they just say half foot. Okay. So I'm imagining they're trying to differentiate themselves somehow. Yeah. For some reason. So he kind of. <laughs> he looks kind of like a 10 year old boy, but he's actually 30. It's revealed in, in the, the novel, something that's, you know, very frustrating to him. But he's like their, their lockpick guy. So he's like always, you know, dealing with traps in the dungeon and then we have Senshi who is the dwarf and he's basically the dungeon expert so he's the one that kind of rallies the group together when um, they lose their provisions and it's like no let's go into the dungeon and hunt monsters and eat them and we'll like find sustenance as we go Um, and for me like the really interesting lore that kind of develops over the course of uh, there's I, I think been seven or eight volumes published in English is that this dungeon is this magical place and there is basically an end goal for adventurers. The idea is to get to the the end of the dungeon the, and then fight some... I, I believe, like, you have to fight the dragon there or, or like something the like magician? that. magician? Magician. Like yeah, magician. It's setting yeah. up in the beginning. Yeah, and then if you do that, then you become the king of this land. So there's, you know, there's this quest element to it, which I think is really interesting. And for me, like, that was the most surprising part. It, it wasn't... It, it wasn't something that was... It wasn't a story that was, um, 
I was expecting it to be more shallow, maybe more comedic, maybe more, again, like, maybe more traditional fantasy. But, you know, there's a lot of very dark and very deep lore that kind of goes on. Um, and I don't know. It was it was a real surprise to me. I got really caught up in, in the story as it as the volumes went along. Yeah. I also really enjoyed this work. This is my first time reading it. And I... I feel like I may, may have a bit more experience in Dungeons & Dragons, I'm saying now, having played Dungeons & Dragons for one whole year, <laughs> um, which makes me an expert. But uh, yeah, it's like I also was a little bit surface level disappointing that mm. it seemed very on the nose yeah. initially. It's like, it's just D&D, like when you start with the initial pages, like with nothing else going on. Mm-hmm. But it very quickly reveals these additional elements and... Yeah, I forget where I was going with this off, but it was really, really fun. I love the art. I love the characters. Oh, I remember what I wanted to say. It also struck me how much it felt like D&D in the sense of it being almost a game. Okay, yeah. So Mm -hmm. they keep everything within the lore itself. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't doesn't seem from my reading of the work that it's supposed to be a game, but there is this gamey element to it where you have people with very distinct roles and they die. So they, they, they talk about, oh, this is the first time that I died and then I got revived. And they speak about multiple lives in a way that's really funny. And then they have the levels of the dungeon and like everyone has their own strategy for this level of the dungeon. Uh, and that makes it feel a little bit surreal and not very grounded to me, but in a way that's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, so when I actually first read delicious and dungeon i read the second volume first oh. um I'd, I'd gotten them from the library and the second volume had just come in first and they talk about like in the second volume people are just dead you know like they stumble on this group of bodies and they're like oh these people are dead you know and 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 um there's a big plot about leos's sister i don't know how to pronounce her name it starts with an f uh phelan phelan or, yeah I think okay so. phelan yeah so there's this big subplot about her having been killed by a dragon and I was just like it was kind of traumatic to read and I was like oh my gosh all these people are dying this book is really bloodthirsty and then I got this you know the first volume from the library and it's like oh they can actually like come back to life you know this is like game logic here yeah so yeah that was a huge relief to be honest because I was like oh my gosh this book is so dark like all these people are dying and you know the main character's sister has been eaten by this dragon oh oh they can they can come back to life it's fine (laughs) yeah no the um the fact that they can come back to life that was I found that part a little off-putting at the start because I don't know this is a problem anytime you have something that's basically a game and you're adapting it into a story is like how do you deal with that logic where what makes sense for a game is that you can just keep playing because it's not fun otherwise versus a story where like if no one can die then like what are the stakes uh so that I found a little off-putting at first but as we got into like meeting all these monsters and there was so much world building and the characters got more complicated like I was totally in by the second volume Yeah, yeah it's funny because it's like I agree with you in the sense that it feels like there's no stakes, but the stake isn't really their adventure. Mm. Like, their sister kind of just feels like a... Well, what do you call that? A, not a mulligan. A MacGuffin. MacGuffin, thank you. She just feels like a MacGuffin, like the point of going through the dragon. But the stakes are like, how are they going to eat this thing? <laughs> right. You know, like, what, yes. how, how do you eat armor? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. just, I'm really invested in figuring yeah. out the ecosystem <laughs> oh. of this, this oh, dungeon. Yeah. Once, once I got the formula, like every chapter, you're like, oh, what monster are they going to eat today? How are they going to prepare it? <laughs> um, and like, it was, I think, I don't know about you guys, but like, I when I lived, I lived in Japan for uh, two and a half years. And so... 
the way they prepare the monsters, I found myself being like, oh, yeah, I, I ate that. Like, I've eaten <laughs> food prepared that way. Like, like, yeah, yeah. Like, of course, you gotta, like, fry it up and make a soup out. Of course, like, that's how you'd prepare it. <laughs> and, like, what was really fun for me was, so, I can't remember if it was the first volume or the second volume, but they, the group runs into this group of uh, trolls who have been living in the dungeon. And, you know, there's this kind of horrific element to it because like the trolls have were previously living above ground you know they had a village and then they were chased out of their village by humans and forced underground and there is food being prepared all the while marcelli is arguing with the head troll person about you know the wrongs that each side has inflicted on each other so it's so (laughs) like it's so interesting to me it's like you know in the midst of it's not just like it's not just a cooking manga. It's really not. Like, it's it's a lot more interesting than that, I feel like. Um, so, But it also shows, you know, this idea of, like, you know, groups gathering and preparing food and sustenance, but also, like, having giant fights, which is, you know, <laughs> what happens with, you know, human families. It's like every, everyone, you know, at, at, at Christmas time or at Thanksgiving, it's like, oh, we got to gather with our families and who knows how it'll go this year. <laughs> <laughs> Like, specifically, that scene stood out to me, too, because they're having these really intense arguments about, you know, the elves displaced us, and no, but you're orcs, you looted us first, and, like, and then there's, like, this pause because they're waiting for, like, the dough to rise. Yes. And so it's just, like, <laughs> these, like, intense arguments punctuated with this, them, like, standing and waiting for, like, the dough to finish rising so they can do the next step in the bread preparation. Like, I, I just like the pacing of that yeah. scene so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good scene. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard of this manga artist before this book series, but I I really like how she approaches comics. Like, I feel like her pacing and her comedic timing is really excellent. Like, yeah, I, I again, I'm not familiar with her work, but earlier, but so I don't know like how many published works or how many web comics she'd done before. But I was just really really blown away by it. It immediately drew me in. Um, I immediately liked the world. I liked the characters. I was immediately invested in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, the yeah. characters are very expressive too. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, Senshi with his like weird staring eyes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He's probably my favorite. Yeah, yeah. he's just like whatever. We're just gonna eat this algae. What is, what's yeah. your problem? Uh, that's that's when the book came alive to me because like I started reading and I was it, like kind of like oh, because I, I will say actually my least favorite thing I think in comics is a comic based on someone's Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Mm. Like I can't get into. I know other people like it respect to that but it's not a thing I get into so I was like oh no is this going to be two books of just someone's D&D campaign but then Senshi showed up and as soon as Senshi showed up I was like oh okay (laughs) here's the hook like Senshi the dwarf is going to show them how to prepare the mushroom man and the poisonous (laughs) scorpion (laughs) and yeah and then it just I was like okay now I'm in I'm in for this now it's Mm -hmm. all about Senshi (laughs) yeah there's a a scene my favorite scene in um, these two volumes at least is uh there's a scene where Senshi is kind of explaining why he is so invested in eating these monsters. And it's he explains, I don't know if I can get it word for word or anything, but he's like talking about it as like he wants to be part of this ecosystem. Like he has a lot of respect for the the creatures that live in this dungeon and the way that they live and the way that they all interact with each other. And so his his ambition isn't just oh, I want to eat monsters like uh, like Leos. That's all he wants to do is like, what does that monster taste like? <laughs> but for Senshi, it's like, no, I I live in this dungeon. I need to be part of this ecosystem. So I'm just like 
making myself part of this story yeah. rather than just like taking treasure out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really stood yeah. out to me as well, that particular scene. Now, how he views himself as a caretaker. Mm-hmm. And he's he's like, you, you can't just take. You have to also give and maintain. Yeah. And yeah, we're all connected through food and through the things that grow. And it was, it was really interesting <laughs> to watch. Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the uh, the chapter where they established that he captures the golems mm. and knocks them out and then tills them and plants <laughs> seeds in them and then lets them roam around the dungeon again while the like vegetables grow on their back. <laughs> Just like the the elaborateness of that. And then they find out because I guess the dungeon has like outhouses throughout mm-hmm. as they find out the senshi's been Harvesting from the outhouses <laughs> to fertilize the golems. Yeah, and I think it's uh, Chiltrek who's like, uh, I think he's the one who comments like, "Oh, the outhouses always seem to be clean. I don't yeah. know who's doing that. Oh, it's Senshi. Yeah. He's <laughs> using it for manure." The, the other little joke in that that I liked was uh, when Senshi was saying, "Oh, I used to put my vegetables out as like a little uh, market with the hopes that people would leave coins for the vegetables I put out." But every time I checked the treasure chest, there was no coins in them. And then Chiltruck is like, that's why there were coins in those chests. <laughs> <laughs> such a great joke. Yeah. It's such a different attitude. And it's interesting because, like, when you think about Dungeons & Dragons or video games or things like that, there is this kind of plunderer attitude. And so having it as a little bit of a... Uh, mixing it with a more traditional view of culture let's say mm-hmm. where it's like culture is about maintenance and is about like an ecosystem and how you're interacting with it but dungeon crawling yeah. by its very definition <laughs> is a uh, slash and burn and is yeah. pillage and <laughs> take what you want yeah. take what you can I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I like that uh, the way the dungeon is described is it's not static and unchanging it's mm-hmm. been changing over time like the castle that's underground used to be covered in gold and then like gold farmers came and took all that gold and now it's just gone. Or there used to be a lot more golems, but then people killed them uh, to like work their way through the dungeon, but that has an effect on the ecosystem and now other creatures are moving up to that level because the golems can't like control the population of the skeletons now. Right. So <laughs> yeah. like, that was really interesting. Yeah, and that's something that I am always like so fascinated about and in fantasy in particular, it's like how do these people eat? You know, like how mm-hmm. how do does this dungeon affect the local ecosystem? Like how how is the what is the impact of of this this fantasy adventure? Because I you know like one of the things I I just finished reading this like giant high fantasy book that was like very beautifully written had great characters in it great ideas um, but it also fell into a lot of the high fantasy tropes that I get frustrated with which is like. It's all about kings and queens, and there's nothing about, like, everyday lives or, like, how people make their living and that kind of thing. And that's always something I'm weirdly fascinated with in fantasy, because it's, like, I love the idea of fantasy. You know, I, I love the idea of farmers coexisting with dragons and that kind of thing, and that's that's what I'd love to see more of. And I feel like this book, you know, it, it is, like, an action-adventure manga, and, you know, I do want to, you know, say it, it has lots of that in it, but it also has this sort of down-to-earth quality that I, I really appreciate um, and I really enjoy. And i just like to say, since we're talking about Senshi a little bit, I love the part where um, Marsili washes his beard <laughs> so because he's like, they're trying to get across um, a river or a lake 
And her way to do that is to basically make make everyone in the party very, very light so they can float across the lake. But Senshi is too heavy, so they wash his beard and then he becomes light. Um, But it's just, it's such a lovely scene, you know? And and they they talk about, you know, getting dirty and wanting baths and that kind of thing. And I don't know. That is also something I think about in fantasy. It's like, how often do these people bathe? (laughs) Yeah, no, it brought a little bit of the camping aspect to it, right? Which I feel like is only given lip service uh what jumps to mind is a a series like pokemon like the even the original anime of pokemon where it's like you have these three 10 year olds who are basically living (laughs) by camping you know going from city to city and very infrequently do they actually touch on what that life is like Mm -hmm. uh that you see them camping you see them building a fire you see brock like cooking for them but it's very it's very i feel under underexplored mm-hmm. yeah. yeah because uh i'm someone who i really like to camp and so that's that experience of taking everything with you and h- what are you going to make next you know like how are you going to prepare it and like finding a nice place to make your fire and actually do some cooking it's actually really involved mm-hmm. uh and so it doesn't get explored very often I also appreciated that uh uh senshi was always talking about nutrition mm. where like <laughs> Like, look at those other adventurers. They're just eating salted pork. Like, they're going to get malnutrition. Like And, like, no, every I mean, meal that he makes, it has, like, this little... Yeah. Uh, radar little, chart. Yeah. yeah, this little chart that yeah, shows, so like, the nutrition of each meal. Yeah. Energy, vitamins, yeah. carbs, calcium, <laughs> iron, fat. <laughs> really fun. Yeah. I actually, I really appreciated that they showed the recipes, too. Mm-hmm. Like, even though they're, like, you know, they're like, oh, you need... Um, whatever, three pounds of mushroom man and, like, a pound of, like, poisonous scorpion, but you're kind of like, okay, so get some mushrooms and some prawns and kind of make this recipe. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's actually made, I mean, made a version of go, these recipes. Go on the internet. I'm sure someone has. Yeah, I will read multiple Reddit threads. Yeah, I want to I watch this episode of Binging with Babish. As soon as, becomes, as soon as it becomes an anime, I guess. I've never seen him do a book before, but... <laughs> uh, I mean, they get they even go past um, like just like the food dishes. Like they even have like um, Marcel makes like soap mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. uh, kelpie yeah. fat. Like I don't know. It's like they just I've, there's this real focus on like yeah, like being self sufficient and making things for yourself. It's mm-hmm. just like well, you're in the dungeon. If you want soap, you're gonna have to make it yourself. <laughs> so make it from the thing you're also gonna eat. Yeah. And I think that, uh, like, Marsili is a powerful magical user, um, and she initially has conflict with Senshi about, should I do magic? Or, you know, no, you have to work at it. So I, I appreciate that, because, you know, there's no element of, like, oh, we'll just make magical soap, or, you know, like, we'll just mm-hmm. magic these car- these this food out of, out of thin air. They really have to work for, for their sustenance, basically, or for anything that they, they particularly need. Um, and I also... I also appreciate that not so much in the first two volumes, but in later volumes, uh, Marsili's magic is portrayed as something that she works very hard to achieve. She works very hard to control, and that's something I really like to see in in fantasy. It's like I want to see I want to see people for whom magic is a skill. It's a learned skill rather than something that they're just naturally born with, and it's easy for them. Um, I think it's a much more interesting element of that person's character, perhaps, when magic is presented in that way. I also Definitely. like that uh, her magic is portrayed as being sort of culture, not just mm. like a thing you can do to fight monsters. Like when she's washing uh, Senshi's beard, she's talking about like 
how cleanliness is part of magic. This is part of my cultural tradition. Like you can't do magic unless you're clean. So you, we need to wash that beard. Uh, so that's that's why you can't walk on water. And that's, those sort of like things that like as a reader, we don't really know for sure whether that's like how much of that is real and how much of that is just like the way that magic is processed in this culture. But it's it's good to have those sort of like it it feels more part of the world rather than just like a checkbox on a character development sheet. Mm-hmm. If it's like integrated into like everything they think about. Yeah, absolutely. I love Marcelli. Like, I don't know. <laughs> she gets like, I liked her at the beginning. Like I'm always kind of a sucker for like the smart girl, you know, <laughs> who's, who's like trying really hard. And then I don't know, in, in later volumes, I just, I feel like she really kind of, kind of comes into her own and she seems to suffer from a lot of self doubt, which <laughs> also I identify with. Um, as I'm sure we all do. And yeah, she's, I feel like she's my favorite of the group. Um, but I think they're all lovely. Like, I, I don't know. I don't think that there's, there's a dud in the group. Like a lot of times when I read manga with fairly large casts, I'm like, well, I like this person, but not the other ones. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's, time. that's why I can't get into my hero academia. Like I only like, like half the there. cast, you know, and uh, I don't know. And I just, the other half, I'm just like, I don't care about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Laos wa- took me a while to warm up to because yeah. in the beginning he was very just like I want to eat this yeah. I want to eat this I he comes eat off this. as very square at the beginning like yeah. kind of the the Fred of the the group if we're going by Scooby Doo analogies <laughs> right. yeah. you know <laughs> yeah like I don't know he seemed a bit just like yeah like almost like sociopathic in his quest to just like eat monsters and I was like what is this guy's deal but then <laughs> you started to get more of his backstory and like mm-hmm. they started to address the sister thing a little more because I did find that very off-putting at the very beginning where because they fight the dragon and then they get I guess teleported to the surface level and then they're just kind of like oh well I guess we should go rescue my sister Oh, she's probably in the dragon's stomach. Like, do you think she's completely digested by now? <laughs> that part was like, very strange. If, yeah. if she's like completely digested, could we still like reincarnate her? And like, yeah, that kind of. I will say, like, some of those discussions about death. Uh, like, I mean, I think the intention is to be black comedy, but mm. I, yeah, I definitely found those a little bit took me out a little bit. Where it just seems like. There's no it, it, it reduces the stakes a little bit. Yeah. Where they're just like, yeah, you know, like you know, sometimes you just die and then like uh, you come back to life again. So yeah. I yeah. feel like some, I feel like sometimes with manga, um, like if I'm reading a new manga, I always try and give it like two or three volumes before I make a decision as to as to whether or not I like it because I feel like the serialized nature of how they publish there sometimes it's like you read the first volume of something and it feels a certain way. And then all of a sudden you read later volumes and it feels very, very different. And it's like the world is kind of like opened up and the creator has like found their voice in a way. And I mean, maybe it it just kind of comes about because manga is so often canceled. Right. So in the beginning, they're just sort of throwing everything they can at the at the wall and seeing what sticks. Like, I think especially about the first volume of um, Full Metal Alchemist. And it's like it doesn't it's fine, but it doesn't indicate the depths that are going to come later and I feel like it's I don't know like it, it doesn't work as it doesn't work super well for me like I, I feel like the the beginning of Full Metal Alchemist is, yeah. is kind of the roughest part of it it's true early FMA is very episodic right? yeah, yeah yeah and also like I don't know just yeah it it 
I remember, I had to read like four volumes of that series before I really got sucked into it, and now it's like my favorite thing in the world, you know. Yeah. But and and that's kind of how Delicious and Dungeon feels to me. Like the early stuff, and especially in the first volume, feels kind of rough, and it feels like maybe the creator didn't quite know where she was going, and then maybe the series became popular, and she's like, oh, finally, I can invest in this. You know, I can spend more time with these characters. I can broaden the world because now I have time. You know, yeah. now I have the ability to do this. So I'm always curious about that. Yeah. I was going to add, though, that, like, if you think of it from a world-building aspect, in a world where death is commonplace and revival is not that big a deal, like, that attitude of, like, oh, my sister died more makes sense. Mm -hmm. Where it's, like, death to us is, like, very serious and very Mm -hmm. permanent. Mm -hmm. But if it's not serious and not permanent, then it's like, oh, man, I broke my arm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe it's just like it's uh, introducing that so early on so then mm-hmm. you're kind of like wait why are these people not in a panic about the sister yeah, yeah. and then at, at, like again like by the time you get to volume two you're like oh like yeah Chilchuck's been killed by uh, mimics mimics yeah. like so many times that he's got a grudge against Mimics. Like. Yeah. yeah. That it part also... was really funny. I don't know, it's just like this little throwaway section, but it's really funny. He's just like dying repeatedly. I also like that Mimics are essentially just crabs. Hermit crabs. Yeah. Hermit crabs. Hermit crabs. So cute. <laughs> that live in... And I, I loved that little bit chests. of the, the ecosystem between the treasure... Oh, yeah, Treasure that was bugs great. and the Mimics. Are oh, like, yeah. That's my favorite so part. So strange. Yeah. <laughs> this dungeon is this dungeon ecosystem is very strange, but I do enjoy how well thought out it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I also just sort of get the impression that everything sort of has like a real world analog. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe in future volumes it changes, but I so, it's like so far every monster they've killed, I'm like, oh, so essentially, if I got some crab, some king crab, <laughs> I could do this recipe, right? Like. <laughs> I don't need a, a mimic. I don't have access to a mimic. But if I got some king crab, I could, like, make this recipe, you know. Or, you know, each each one of them, I feel like there's an equivalent where you're like, oh, yeah, like, you could kind of make this but just substitute dragon meat for, like, whatever. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it's what it made me think about was, um, actually, have you ever read the book? Probably none of you. Dawn of the Cave Bear? No. no. I've heard of so, it. So, yeah, it's a book that takes place of, like, uh, the protagonists are neanderthal era humanoids right uh humans uh and so it goes into this process of discovering for the first time whether something is edible and like the the thought process of that and so when i was reading this book it reminded me of that it reminded me that every culture every culture's food did evolve Mm -hmm. around this process of like can i eat this and how and what is the best way to eat this and so (laughs) if you just think of the dungeon as like its Mm -hmm. own evolving culture it's it's (laughs) it's really interesting to think about yeah it's like you know the the things that we enjoy now like you know like all of the parts of a cow you know or, or you know chicken eggs or things like that like how you know our ancestors it's like what sort of crazy things did they eat and probably die from eating mm-hmm. in order for us to discover oh yeah chicken eggs good maybe maybe not maybe not these like frogs brightly colored frogs you know yeah. right <laughs> there's this there's this awesome channel on youtube uh i'll get you the link i forget but it's this guy who basically digs up 18th century recipes oh wow. of like uh settler era recipes and he's like recreates them with the ingredients as close as he can get mm. and he's like this is how they understood how to cook and this is the type of oven they would have cooked on and he tries to get them as authentic yeah. as possible oh that's nice <laughs> oh, right on 
Uh, I heard a, a story once uh, of how indigenous people in Canada figured out that uh, you can make aspirin out of, I forget the plant uh, that it is. Willow? Uh, it's, it's not cedar. I thought it was willow. No, it's, it's, I don't know. The, it's a, it, anyways, the, the story goes that, uh, and it's like a traditional story, but like it's clearly a thing that really happened. Yes, uh, someone saw a, um, a muskrat who was injured eating this plant and then seeming to feel better. And they were like, oh, okay, well, let's try that. Mm. <laughs> and then discovered aspirin. Nice. So um, there are ways of testing out whether something's edible or not besides just, like, <laughs> eating a fistful of it and then dying or not. <laughs> that would probably be how I would do it, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't live in those times. <laughs> I don't know I don't know if this will be a plot point in future volumes, but, uh, yeah, I, I sort of right now feel like if anyone's going to die from something being poisonous is going to be Laos. Mm, yeah. <laughs> just a little, little too ambitious. Gung ho, just put it in my mouth. Yeah. Gotta eat it. Maricel's like, um... Yeah, she's a little more relatable in that sense. Like, I would be the one who's like, I don't know, should we really be eating that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was the one chapter where she was, oh, uh, I think that was the one with the hanging trees, uh, the trees with the vines that would right, you know, right, right. snare people. But I can't remember what... Oh, they wanted to hunt and kill bats. There were, like, giant, giant, right. horrible bat monsters. And she was like, no, no, fruit. You know, like, find me something normal to eat, <laughs> which is basically how I would be as a child. It was like, you know, no, I'm not eating that thing. It looks weird. I want, <laughs> you know, like an apple or something like that. <laughs> yeah. The, the process of, like figuring out recipes for all these creatures and then um, ties in so well with figuring out, like, what is their lifestyle? What is their ecosystem? And I, I just like that idea of taking, like, a fantasy creature you've probably heard of and really thinking about, like, how does that work? Mm. How can you have a creature like that? What would it actually be like? What would it eat? What would eat it? Uh, that kind of stuff is, like, a lot of fun. Because that's something yeah. I often think about with, like, fantasy stories is, like, how would, like... How would that make sense? What would what would that be? And then, to, I, and that's that's a big part of what this book is doing is sort of like filling in those gaps. Yeah, my favorite monster kind of uh, ecosystem was probably the living armor. Oh <laughs> yeah, like because that was like they were so baffled. They're like, "What is going on with this armor? How is the armor moving? Like, how does the armor work? Is it magic?" And the solution is so strange, but uh, also. And the solution is that there's mollusks inside yeah. the armor. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah. essentially yeah. like a giant conglomeration of clams. And instead of having <laughs> clamshells, they have armor. Uh, which, I mean, I also, once they revealed them that it's mollusks, I was like, oh, I know what they're going to cook. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite is still the, uh, the mimics and the uh, treasure insects, where mm. they, at first, they find, like, treasure insects in an empty chest and they assume oh well it, the mimics are eating treasure insects but then no it turns out it's the other way around the treasure insects will sneak into a mimic's shell which is like a box uh, and then eat the, uh, the the treasure eat the mimic and then you have an empty box filled with treasure insects <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. also I, this is uh, an important chapter because Laos gets his like new sword that mm. has the little mollusk living inside of it mm -hmm. that gives him like a heads up when there's danger. <laughs> <laughs> I you. appreciated that too. 
Very cute. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. I love seeing, like, the little, it has little eye stalks that kind of, like, <laughs> yeah. pop out. And it's just, it's really cute. And he gives it a name. I've forgotten the name, though. But it's something, like... I don't know. It's, yeah. But it's something it's cute. It's Ken- Kensuke Ken- or something. Yeah. 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 Kensuke. Kensuke. Yeah. Kensuke. <laughs> I also like the um, the scene with the Kelpie where oh. Senshi has gone to meet this sort of horse, sea horse monster thing on a regular basis because he just thinks it's cool. And he's named it, too. He's named it, yeah. yeah. I, do you remember what the name was? It was Anne. Anne. Yeah. yeah. Anne. So Anne <laughs> Like the, the most basic name ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> He is a little basic sometimes. Yeah. Um, but he's, like, made friends with it, and he's, like, every interaction he's had with this Kelpie has been, like, friendly, and so he's, like, this is my friend. <laughs> the, she's a Kelpie. Uh, and then everyone else is, like, well, Kelpies are super dangerous. They eat people. They, like, drag you down underwater to your death. He's, like, well, she's never done that to me. All confident that this is how this is. And then the one time he tries to ride her, she immediately switches and like tries to drag him down into the depths to eat him and i I was just reminded of everyone who uh every story you ever hear about someone who owns like a pet tiger or a bear (laughs) like well every day that i go out and i hang out with my tiger everything's great but then you know one day that tiger who is like not a domesticated animal uh decides oh i'm really hungry hungry today i guess i'm gonna eat that guy Tiger nothing. Like, I, I watched a, a video clip online of someone who had invited a squirrel into their home by feeding them nuts. Oh, no. And he's like, oh, a squirrel is my friend. Yeah, I just eat a nuts and it's fine. And I'm like, that squirrel is going to destroy your house. <laughs> that squirrel is going to get in and you're not going to be able to get it out. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, there was, um, I think this was like a, a Reddit thread or something where someone posted like, oh, my pet python has gotten really affectionate. It sleeps oh, beside no. me in the bed now. And people are like, you no. need to get rid of that. It is measuring you. It's waiting until it's long enough to fit you in its body. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Yeah, there was... Um, oh, do we have time to talk about the, the living paintings? Sure. Oh, yeah, that, that was... was a really interesting part. Yeah, there was a lot of sort of backstory to the dungeon yeah. part. Yeah, so, like, that was... I f- like, not the first time that we saw, like, the the introduction of of lore or that there was like more going on in the dungeon than we initially thought um so basically the setup is there everyone's really hungry there's no monsters around there's nothing that they can cook and eat so they walk by walk through this hallway that has these paintings and they're living paintings so they decide or laos decides to go inside the painting eat the food that is inside the painting. So it's like, you know, a scene of a banquet or something like that. So his idea is to go inside, eat at the banquet, and then come back out and he'll be full. And then we meet up with a couple of characters inside the painting. One who was Dagal, I think, and he was the king of this land that the dungeon eventually, like, took over. And then we also meet... Uh, the person that might possibly be the lunatic magician, who mm-hmm. is That's what I think. the the end boss, I, I think. So yeah, we I mean we don't quite know. They're just this mysterious magical figure. But I, you know, like Leos goes inside and he tries like four times, and yeah. each time it's like, oh no, the ambiance isn't right. You know, like I can't <laughs> I can't quite you know get my appetite going. And each each painting is like a different scene in time. Um, so that's really interesting. It's like you're watching the history of the dungeon unfold. Um, and then finally he gets to eat. You know, he, he goes into the right painting. There's like this beautiful spread. He chows down. It's amazing. He comes back out and he's 
he's hungry because it's like you know he's basically eaten like food that isn't actually there yeah. so he's still hungry so all of that energy for nothing yeah yeah i yeah i appreciated that because like when he was going into the paintings i thought to myself i'm like oh it's gonna yeah it's not gonna work you can only have the food when you're in the painting yeah and so like i was not surprised when he came out and was like i'm hungry <laughs> yeah, of course you are this wasn't real food <laughs> Clearly, Leos doesn't read enough fantasy in stories. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a, I thought it was a really clever way to introduce lore mm-hmm. in a way that was not like an info dump. Yeah. You yeah. know? I, I agree. Yeah, because it was basically like you're being introduced to the, the history of the dungeon and some of the very important people who had been a part of its history. and But you were doing it in a way that was like creative and, and like... You know, like, I, I've I've done a fantasy trilogy, and that was the biggest challenge. It was trying to put, to do the world building in a way that felt natural, and there was not basically, like, someone being like, ah, 500 years ago, this <laughs> happened, and then this happened, and that is why you are here today, son. You know, like, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's really hard to do, and I don't know, whenever someone does world building in a way that, or exposition in a way that's, like, creative and interesting, I'm just, I'm always really impressed. So, yeah, this was really cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's... Uh, expedition's really hard. It's yeah, really hard to it avoid. Really is. Yeah. It's so easy, so tempting to just have the omniscient narrator yeah. introduce it, or just, like, otherwise you fall into that horrible trap of just characters being like, oh, as you know, five years ago, we <laughs> met, and... <laughs> and this happened. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, just to have, like, the the text at the beginning. Like, I... Like, I watched a first couple episode, the first couple episodes of uh, the BBC Golden Compass adaptation, and oh, I was really mm. surprised that right at the beginning they just had like a wall of text that was like, "These are the demons," and you know, like hmm. this is their relationship with them, and they're like alternate worlds, and it was like, really, like, I don't know. I feel like that's something you need to reveal over the course of your your TV show that you're mm. you know showing yeah. to me. Yeah, no, I'm pretty very sure strange. the the book. Like did not do it that way. It was much more naturally. Oh, okay, like, I haven't read. If the I books. remember correctly, yeah, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of the first, third book. I had some trouble with. But I'm a okay. big fan of the first two books, and uh, like, yeah, they pulls no punches. They're okay. just like, we're in Oxford. Oh, she has her magical companion. This link to her soul. Anyways, moving on. And you're like, Wait, huh? And like, <laughs> yeah, and you kind of figure it out as you go. <laughs> okay, so it's it not like there isn't like a paragraph at the beginning no, of, right. of the book that's no. like, here is the. You know, the lay of the land or whatever. Uh, one of my favorite uh, info dubs is probably from Pacific Rim. The introduction to Pacific Rim is really well done. It's oh, like yeah, a montage fun. of news clips kind of saying like, you know, with with very iconic monuments and bridges and things like that getting destroyed by the kaiju and how people have reacted. And it, it, it takes about two minutes and it's just like establishes so much of like, and then two minutes later you're like, and, and now we're doing monsters versus robots. So... Buckle up. This is how it's going to be. This just is what it is. Like, I don't I don't mind prologues at all. Like, I, I like a good prologue, but I'm always I'm always a little put off if it's just like, well, here are words on a screen, and, you know, you just have to suck it up, and, mm-hmm. you know, we've just decided this is how we're going to explain these things to you, the audience, and I don't know. I'm like, come on, guys. <laughs> you can do better. You gotta, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's sometimes you have to, but I think you always yeah. need to ask yourself, yeah. like, is there another way I could do this? Yeah. Can I, like, yeah, can I figure out a better way of doing this? I think that should be always your goal. It's like, can I work around that, introduce this without just having the omniscient narrator or stilted dialogue or whatever wall of text? The art's really good. Yeah, it's really good. I'm actually really curious if 
if she works digitally or traditionally. Because I, I feel like maybe she started traditionally and then moved into digital art. I don't know. I don't know. I recognize some manga studio yeah, I like, do too. screens, so yeah. I feel like there is a little bit of digital, if not all digital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I do too. Like That's why I was wondering, because it's like... In the beginning of the first volume, it did feel traditional. Like it looked, it looked like maybe a pen she was inking with. And then later on, fairly quickly, it looked. It, I felt like I could recognize like some manga studio type pens, but I don't know. It's, I it's, never want to assume. The, the, but... the screen tones were what yeah. really had me thinking. It was, yeah. uh, Clip Studio because mm-hmm. that's I, I'm working in Clip Studio right now, so I'm just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I do too. I draw I, my comics in Clip Studio, but I, I ink them traditionally, so oh. ah, um, okay. it's a hybrid digital traditional mix. Hmm. But yeah, it's like yeah, some of those back like that that like background crosshatch, oh, like I'm oh, just yeah. like, oh yeah, I've done that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's really good. Like I I really like I, like at first you can tell that this is. Like, the first couple chapters in, in the first volume, it's like, oh, you know, she's getting used to drawing the characters and, and the world. It's like, no, I feel like no artist, like, not even, like, Noki Urasawa or Herma Arako, who, who for me are, like, the pinnacles of, of cartooning, no one hits the ground running. You know, it's like you mm-hmm. always need a few pages to really learn how to draw these characters in, in your comic. Mm. Um, but she gets so good so fast, you yeah. know, and the characters are so appealing so quickly. Like, mm-hmm. I love how she draws Marcelli. Like, she's she's <laughs> such a cute character. Like, she's drawn in this way and I, I I don't know I I don't like using the word cute to describe you know a young woman but it's like I don't know there's something I guess appealing is a better word she's just she's so appealing and I love the way she draws her ears they're so uh-huh. cute yeah cute I don't know I don't know she's oh, just yeah, yeah. she's adorable she's beautiful uh-huh. she's appealing I love her so much I think appeal like appeal is the right yeah. word like just everything's really like I don't know round and yeah, it's like just good shape, and mm-hmm. everything's like really dynamic, and the facial expressions are really good. Like, yeah, and great um, profiles too. Yeah. Like she draws people in profiles yeah. really well. Distinctive character designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you brought this up earlier, but like the the style of cartooning, like the paneling, everything mm. is very very clear. Yeah. Like despite a lot going on and a fairly complex setting, I never felt lost. Yes, which absolutely. is uh, I think unusual for this genre. Yeah, and especially like. I mean, I don't, I read, I read a fair amount of manga. I don't read a lot of it. And a lot of, sometimes uh, the particular style of paneling doesn't necessarily appeal to me. Mm. Um, like, but I really like the way she panels, like a lot of uh, different sizes of square panels, I guess, is <laughs> how to describe it. <laughs> like, I really, really enjoy that style of cartooning. I know some people maybe feel like it's a little traditional or maybe not, you know, It works. Forward it's traditional thinking. because it works. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I, I just feel like it works so well. And mm-hmm. yeah, like, absolutely her clarity of storytelling is, is really, really strong. And I just, I really enjoy it. Yeah, and I think it, the, the clarity of the drawing style really helps to make the the creatures and the dungeon feel real mm-hmm. like without dwelling a lot on the backgrounds just the the parts of the backgrounds that we see are so like different at different levels and uh complicated that like it feels like a real place yeah like absolutely. much more so than uh any sort of D based video game i can think of yeah absolutely yeah yeah okay final thoughts Broad recommend. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a very easy work to enjoy. I would recommend it to almost anyone. It's also a pretty solid early manga if you're not used to manga, I would I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I would recommend. I think this is maybe the only sword and sorcery comic I would 
I would recommend. Uh, just like, yeah, just for the, the, the bizarreness of like, okay, D&D, but it's all about cooking. <laughs> that's, that's the elevator pitch, and I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would, I would recommend this to anyone who's looking to read something a little weird or a little different. Like, because like D&D plus cooking is like, I've never seen that before. That's a little strange, but no, it, it really works well. So read it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really excited to talk about it with you guys because my husband does not read fantasy as a role. He he just doesn't care for it. So it's been really fun to to chat about it with you. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like, again, I was initially skeptical going in and it absolutely won me over. And I just I love the characters and I'm excited to see where she takes the story, the the mangaka. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, all right, so uh, let's do a shout-out. I'm Jonathan. Uh, you can find my work at phobos-comic.com. And I want to shout-out Space Boy, which is a webcomic on Webtoon by Stephen McCraney. I've basically been binging it all week long, and I got to the end last night at, like, 1 a.m., and I was like, that's it? I need more! <laughs> <laughs> Someone recommended it to me, I think, because it has some surface similarities to Phobos and Demos, which I can see, but that just means it's something I'm interested in. So, it's good. I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca. Finally posting some new pages, so check them out. And uh, I'm going to shout out uh, Kickstarter Monster Temple by former trade raider Kathleen Gross, among others. Uh, and it's going to be a like a, a playable monsters compendium of like original monster creations but they're set up so you could incorporate them into your D campaign uh, and i felt like it was appropriate for this episode um i don't know if it talks about how to properly cook and prepare said <laughs> monsters but it's on kickstarter do a search for monster temple oh, that's fun I'm Jam. You can find my comic Wasted Talent. Uh, It updates every Tuesday and Thursday uh, at wastedtalent.ca. I'm stitching up my next big work, which is called Shenzhen Fast, How Stuff Gets Made Overseas. But I would like to shout out a bunch of different indie creators who were going to be at Emerald City. So Emerald City just got announced that it got postponed. Um, And if you like an indie creator, I think it's important to know that Many of them make their rent off this show, so or this show and other large pop culture shows like it. So a few people in particular, uh, Jackface is a local creator. Uh, she's got a bunch of amazing fandom prints on her store. Wear Geek by Alina Peet is coming to the end of her comic run. Uh, she's got a bunch of amazing D&D stuff. Corey Bing, who does Skin Deep, I think was probably also going to be at Emerald City, and she's up at a show right now. Uh, is there anyone else you can think of who was, who was doing Emerald? Uh, I wasn't paying close enough attention to know who was going to be there, um, but there's a lot of people. Yeah, I would say, like, take a look through your favorite creators. If they were going to be at Emerald City or any other large show coming up, it's an amazing time to kick them a buck or two through their Patreon or uh, donation page, and it would really make a difference in their lives. Okay, and I'll put links to all those people on our show notes I oh I was gonna I just I know that Oni Press had some stuff they were gonna launch at Emerald City that they no longer are and so they're doing that as an online store promotion too um, you can find me online faithairnhicks.com although I'm most active on social media I'm faithairnhicks on Twitter faithairnhicks on Instagram 
Um, I also have a Facebook, but I hate Facebook, so I don't update it. <laughs> but I pay their next there as well. Let's see. Uh, oh, we were talking about our most recent comics. And, oh, okay. All right. So most recently, um, I had a book called Pumpkin Heads, which was a collaboration with uh, Rainbow Roll, come out last year. I also had a young adult novel that is all about comics published called Comics Will Break Your Heart. Oh, yeah, and right now I'm writing Avatar The Last Airbender comics for Dark Horse, and my collaborator, uh, the artist on the series, Peter Wortman, he was going to be at Emerald City and has, you know, cannot is not making that trip anymore. Um, he does an excellent webcomic called Stonebreaker, who, and it's a really wonderful little fantasy comic. kind of reminds me of um, Bone a little bit. Um, so, yeah, Peter is awesome. Otherwise, what am I reading? In the non-comics area, I want to recommend The Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells. She's awesome. If you like stories about socially awkward androids, please check out this series. Uh, there's four novellas that have been published, and there'll be a novel out in May. The Trade Waiters is brought to you by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can follow us at tradewaiters.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.